0: Participation moment. Raise your hand if you remember Judge Wapner. That's the majority. How about Judge Judy? How about caught in Providence? (laughs) Our own Frank Caprio, the judge down in Providence. Uh, These proceedings, from my recollection, are always uh, like small ticket items. Right? Uh, Minor disputes between people in the people's court setting, or Judge Judy setting, or maybe infractions of the law for Judge Caprio. But people seem to enjoy watching uh, others sit under the scrutiny of the judges, don't we? (laughs) We want to see our form or understanding of justice take place. It's natural for us to feel this way. You know, it's so easy to get caught up with a critical spirit. To think that we can see all of the implications of everything in a given situation and we render our judgment. We can tend to make a lot of assumptions about people as we look at what's happening in their lives. We discern or judge based upon the little information that we have. And perhaps if we had just a little bit more information... Our thoughts would be swayed. Our judgments would be different. Our judgments might still be wrong, but at least they'd be informed and it would sway our thinking a little bit. As we assess these situations, we're usually thinking that we're in a good position to render our judgment because we see things clearly. We think our perspective is right. You know, when people from the beginning have been judging God, who He is, what He does, how He works, or how He doesn't work. The scene in John chapter 5 is another in a long line of uh, scenarios with people like us who judge God and judge His actions in rendering our judgment against God we think we have a better perspective than him essentially placing ourselves above him it's a dangerous place through the course of our study this morning we're going to see Jesus providing the critics that are judging him he's going to provide them with information that should sway their thinking that should inform them And it should change their perspective from that of being the judges to those who are being judged. He's going to provide them with information. He's going to enlighten them that they should rather than rendering their judgment against Him for His Sabbath violation in their minds, that He truly is the one who renders judgment and offers decisive decision-making about them. But there's greater news than that of Him displaying this switching of roles. It's not just, okay, you're not the judge. I'm the judge. It's not, that's not the great news. That's just news. The greater news is that the judge who works in perfect harmony with his Father is exposing his critics And revealing to them one of His grand schemes. His agendas. His grand mission. And that mission is that He offers to them and He offers to us a clear understanding that He is the life giver. That He offers life. Real life. Oh yes, we have it physically. We're all here. We're... We're able to hear and see and move and breathe. We can think and reason and articulate. We have life. But we're talking about a life beyond that life. A life that when we breathe our last breath in this age, we'll still have life enduring. Good, righteous, peaceful, joyful life with God. This is the life that our Savior offers. And this is the, the contrast that Jesus presents in this passage. The move, if, if a person were to move toward a judge who was a taker of life, that'd be a frightening movement, wouldn't it? As you move toward a, a critical, harsh, life taking judge, your tendency would be to run in the opposite direction. On the other hand, To move toward a judge who is a life giver. To move toward a judge who provides for you everything that you need for your life to be not only sustained in this age, but to be sustained forever. This causes us to wonder in awe as we come near and we see and we receive from Him That which our souls desperately need. The context here we're familiar with. We were looking at it recently. Jesus has come into Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. There are a lot of people there. As He enters into this area with a pool called the Pool of Bethesda, known as the House of Mercy or House of Outpouring, Jesus sees this multitude of infirmed people. People with... Difficulties of all manner. He sees all of these, and among all of these, He spots one person. This man who for 38 years had been unable to move. Now oftentimes in the Gospels, you see Jesus when He comes among a group of infirmed people, He heals them all. You see that record numerous times in the Gospels. But in this instance, Jesus had one particular mission. He enters into the pool of Bethesda, sees that one man, and He changes that man's physical life with an offer of eternal salvation. This man has been paralyzed for 30 years. Jesus heals this one man. It just so happens to be that it was on the Sabbath day. Jesus then instructs the man to carry his mat And the Jewish leaders were indignant. And the controversy is underway. That's where we pick it up in our reading of the Gospel of John, chapter 5. Look at verse 16. It says, And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. They were indignant. Jesus did something. That by all accounts, by anyone with any rational thinking would say, this is a good thing. To see a person who has been infirmed for 38 years start walking, anyone in their right mind would say, this is good. And yet, our critical spirits can often judge even that which is good to be that which is evil. I always marvel, I think you do as well when people stand in judgment of God. I think, like, who are you to stand in judgment against God? Why do you think that you know better than He does? And yet, if we are honest, there are ways in which we all question how God proceeds and the way God does things. And what we perceive God not doing. It's like, why? I don't get it. We all stand in judgment at times. Why isn't God acting as swiftly or clearly as I would like? Why doesn't He intervene in my struggle? Why is this unrighteousness over here going unchecked? Why is my uh, my righteousness not being rewarded? We have all these assessments that we make. We stand in judgment against God. And it's very interesting. The spirit that the Pharisees bring forth to this scene is a spirit that I think, if we're honest, we can identify with that. That we've been there and done that. Come to verse 17. Jesus starts to answer this persecution or this critical response to Him. It says, but Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. My Father is working until now, and I am working. Jesus offers to these critics, these judges, some clarifying information. And He does so by introducing a bit more of His relationship with His Father. And this is some really wonderful theological truth that we can just touch on for just a few moments. And I want to try to distill in just a a moment or two some of the lessons that Jesus will impart in this this section of Scripture about His relationship with His Father. So, this will be on the screen. It will be like Jesus and His Father. The first thing that we recognize here is that both the Father and the Son continue to work without interruption. And that includes on the Sabbath day. The Father and the Son both continue to work Every moment of every day, supernaturally, divinely, holding our world together. Keeping us. Keeping our, our bodies functioning. Keeping the world revolving. It's an amazing, sustaining work that God does even on the Sabbath day. And this was not, this was not something that the Pharisees were super happy about. Secondly, the Father and the Son work in a relationship of equality. And that's what you see in verse 18. Their response. When Jesus says, My Father is working and I am working, the Pharisees knew exactly what Jesus was getting at. Look at verse 18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him. Because not only was He breaking the Sabbath, but He was even calling God His own Father making himself equal with God. Now, it was not atypical for the Jewish people to call God our Father. But this individual, my Father, says something altogether different in their culture, in their setting. So when Jesus says He's my Father, He's talking about this intimate relationship and it makes Him equal with God. Well, that is a true statement. And they they recognized Jesus' claim and it infuriated them. Jesus' is teaching here in this passage. A third area that He teaches about His relationship is that the Son willingly submits to the Father's pattern, instruction, and will. Look at verses 19 and 20. It says, "...So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise." For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing, and greater works than these will He show Him so that you may marvel. The pattern, instruction, and will of the Father is that which the Son performs. He sees the Father giving Him instruction and He Brings it to pass. And the things that the Father shows Him that are amazing, Jesus does. And the people marvel because it's outside of their norm. Look down at verse 30. I can do nothing of My own. As I hear, I judge. And My judgment is just because I seek not My own will, but the will of Him who sent Me. So we see the Son willingly submitting to the Father's plan, pattern, instruction, and will Jesus is teaching this, He comes underneath the Father's role of authority. Now verse 18 tells you, it's a role of equality. It's not, the father is, is uh, preeminent, and the son sub, uh, uh, a, a subject, like he's a subordinate. it's a role relationship where the father and the son and the spirit who are all co-equal co-eternal and co-existent the son willingly places himself under the father's authority to accomplish the father's mission it's a beautiful thing and the next thing that we see in verse number 20 uh, verse 20 is that the father and son operate in a relationship of love look at verse 20 for the father loves the son the Father loves the Son. So we see these concepts about their relationship that are vitally important theological truths. As far as our argument here and seeing what's going on, we have the Pharisees very upset that Jesus broke the Sabbath in their mind. That Jesus violated the Sabbath according to their standards. And Jesus turns the tables on him and says, I want to tell you a little bit about who I really am. You want to come in judgment against me? I want to tell you a little bit about who I am. My Father is working and I am working. That's where we were in verse 17. This pattern of the Father and Son's work continuing uh, from, from creation runs all the way back to Genesis 1 1. It's a general understanding. Uh, it's, it's conveyed in Genesis 1 1, which is In the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. That creation week, six days, it's unfolded there in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis. They they finish the work, and then they rest. They rest. But the reality is, that rest is not a rest of stillness and nothingness. It's a rest that's active, sustaining and controlling and dealing with answering prayer. Now through the progress of Revelation, we understand in our New Testament Bibles, that it was the Son of God who was the primary agent in creation. You can see it in John 1 that we've already studied, as well as Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1. Jesus is this primary agent. The Father being the source. The Son being the the actor. Once that creation was complete, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, rested. But what happened next? Did they cease in their governance? Did they take Saturdays off and... Like If something bad happened, they'd just be like, oh man, I'm resting now. I can't can't really address that. I hope that star doesn't collide into that planet. Oh man, what will I do? No days off in the Trinity. Every moment our God is superintending over His creation. In the following verses, uh, Jesus is going to speak of two of those continuing works that are committed to Him By the delegation of the Father. So the Father commits these two ministries, these works to the Son. The first is the authority to grant, to give life. He is life, He has life, He sustains life, and He gives life. It's within His authority. And the second work which is intimately related is that Jesus is given the work and authority to judge. The Jews are seething. They sought all the more in verse 18 to kill Him. They sought all the more to kill Him. That, that, you've got to be pretty angry. like He's not like He's stealing... Your, you know, cookies out of your cookie jar or stealing your ribs off your grill while you're smoking them in the backyard. It's not, it's not something like that. He's just telling something different than they're used to. He's healing a man on the Sabbath day. He's saying some words. Speaking words. And they're angry enough to kill Him. They're absolutely frustrated with His breaking of the Sabbath and calling Himself equal with God. In the loving relationship of the Father and Son, this headship-submission relationship, the Father shows the Son, reveals to the Son, leads the Son, and the Son, Jesus, accomplishes the mission. We've seen it already in this Gospel. My meat is to do the will of Him who sent Me, and to finish His work. This is what He does. The Father shows the Son, the Son does the work. The patterns that the Father will show the Son will make the Jews marvel. That's what He says in verse 20. The Father is showing me some things, and those things that He's accomplishing are going to make you marvel. Why is that? Because what the Father shows the Son are the things the Son does, and then those things become manifest. Manifest. We saw that right from the beginning of the Gospel of John as well. That Jesus is the exposition, the declaration of the Father. You want to know what the Father is like? Look at the Son. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. Oh, show us the Father and it will be sufficient for us. If you've seen Me, you've seen the Father also. This is what Jesus says. He's unveiling this to these Jewish opponents. They're criticizing Jesus. They're judging Jesus. They think that they can lord it over Him because they have this, this perceived religious authority. And Jesus says, yeah, I just want to let you know a little bit about, about Me. My Father and I are working in coordination. Everything I do is an exact replica Of what my Father does. We are one. This should let them know a little bit about their own theology. They taught their own children in Deuteronomy 6.4 Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. The Word is union. And the Father and the Son are in this intimate, perfect union for all of eternity, including... As Jesus lives out his life, the Son in verse 21 is giving life after the pattern of the Father. And this is going to cause astonishment. Look at verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. As the Father raises the dead and gives life, so the Son gives life to whom he will. It's an amazing thing. Now we we've seen a little bit of the handiwork of this, right? Even in this setting. We have this man, 38 years, his legs are dead. And Jesus says, get up. Take up your bed and walk around. And the man instantly has life in his legs. He instantly has the ability to operate. We see Jesus restoring sight to the blind. That's... There's something dead there. And it's restored. He has the power to give life where there's death. We see Jesus restoring life to a withered hand. Even more pertinent, Jairus' daughter. You'll remember? Remember? She's dead. And Jesus goes in secrecy. Just a few people there. There's two of the disciples or three of the disciples and the parents. And He tells the little girl, get up death to life. In oncoming chapters as we draw toward the middle of the Gospel of John, you'll remember that Jesus' friend Lazarus is dead in a tomb. Jesus comes. (laughs) Remember his sister Martha? By now he stinks. It's been four days. He stinks. Lazarus, come forth from death to life. And you know, in that instance of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, there was an enormous amount of astonishment. And the crowds grew so much so that when Jesus was going into Jerusalem, at on the, in the triumphal entry. We call it Palm Sunday. When Jesus is going into, the, into Jerusalem on, on that day, the streets are lined with people. What are they lined up for? They're marveling that Jesus issues life, physical life, where there's death. He does this. This is who He is. It's in His power. He does this in accordance with His will. And this is just physical life. Will they get to see the real stuff? That 38 year old man, or that person infirmed for 38 years, excuse me, eventually died. Those blinded, they eventually died. The person with a withered hand, eventually died. Jairus' daughter, eventually died. Lazarus, eventually died. It's great to give life. Physical life where there is physical death, but to offer spiritual life that transcends the physical, that is real divine and glorious power. This is who Jesus is. Look at verse 22. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. In addition to the work as a life giver, closely tied to it, Jesus also is this work of ultimate judge. Verse 30. The Father has given all judgment to the Son. But even in this, they're working together. Look what it says. I can do nothing of My own. As I hear, I judge. And My judgment is just. Because I seek not My own will, but the will of Him who sent Me. He's talking about this coordination. God the Father raising people. Jesus giving life. God the Father... Committing to Jesus' judgment. But even in that, Jesus doesn't speak of His own authority. He does this in coordination with His Father. They're doing this in tandem. This divine union. And we see Jesus as this judge. We're going to come back to that judgment concept in a minute, but before we dive into that, there's a reason that Jesus gives that's attached to the rationale as to why He is the judge. And it's tied to people recognizing the honor that is due to Him. Look at verse 23. Verse 23. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. So Jesus, as the One that's been given all judgment... The purpose for that, the motivation for that, is that He would be honored in the same way that His Father is honored. And the Jews were very much in line and fastidious about protecting the honor of the Father. The honor of God. Don't even speak the word Yahweh. The four-letter, in unspeakable word. Don't say Yahweh. We're going to call Him Jehovah. We're going to change it so we don't disrespect His name. We're going to honor the Father. They're all about that. And yet here Jesus is performing the works of the Father and they want to kill Him. But Jesus, you're not understanding who you're dealing with. (laughs) If you're going to honor the Father, you need to honor Me. If you don't honor Me, you cannot honor the Father that you're so fastidious about trying to protect that honor. God the Father has given this role of judge to His Son. It's not, it's not that it's unfitting for the Father to judge or unfitting for the Spirit to be the judge. It's just that it be clear that the, ju- the, that the Son be honored. In Isaiah 42.8, um, there's this statement that God will not share His glory with another. familiar with that? My glory I will not share with another. And yet, Jesus is given this honor as judge. In Philippians chapter 2, listen to these words. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him or given to Him the name that's above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father, to the glory of God the Father. In this, the Son glorifies the Father, the Father glorifies the Son. In the glorification of the Son, the glory of the Father is magnified. So God, the Father, says, "You are the judge." Jesus says, I'm the judge. (laughs) I've been given this authority to judge that you might recognize who I really am. Now there's this expression at the end of verse 23. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. It's an important expression. You guys keep on rejecting me. You want to keep on criticizing me for reaching out to the least of these. You want to keep standing in judgment against me as a Sabbath breaker. A wine-bibber. As a glutton. If you don't honor me as God, you don't honor the Father as God. So the question, I think is a logical and important question, is how do we know if someone honors Jesus? If to not honor Jesus is to not honor the Father, I think that's a significant thing we want to try to figure out. How can we know whether we honor Jesus? How can the Pharisees know that they honor Jesus? How can this man who's just been healed and was told, hey, see, you're well. Go and sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. How can he know whether he honors the son so we can know whether he honors the Father. Well, I think verse 24 starts to unfold that for us. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Can you see, again, how Jesus ties himself to the Father? Look at what he's saying here. Whoever hears my words, my words, and believes him who sent me has eternal life. The words coming from me are the words coming from my Father. When you believe me, you believe the Father. If you believe the Father, you must believe me. You want to honor the Son? Believe him, believe what he says. What does He say? If you hear My words, you're hearing the words of the Father. When you hear and believe My words, you hear and believe My Father. When this happens, you have what? Let's try again. When this happens, when you hear My Word and believe the One who sent Me, what do you have? When do you have it? Presently. It's a present possession. At that moment that a person hears and believes, Jesus grants eternal life. It comes through His Word. Hear Me. Believe Me. Receive life from Me. From Me. He gives it. Eternal life is the present possession of all believers. What Jesus is about to say is astoundingly awesome. At the end of verse 24, look what it says. He, so in the middle of verse 24, who's the He? It's the He who hears Me and believes the One who sent Me and has eternal life. This One does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So, let me give you a little bit of language here. Ready? The person who hears and believes receives eternal life as a current possession. They are not under judgment. They're not in judgment. They're not in condemnation as a present tense. Why? Because they have received. They have passed. That's a past tense. They have passed from death unto life. When? Right then and there. A present possession of the one who believes the words of Jesus. Believes the offer of life that Jesus proclaims has passed from death to life and will not stand, not now and not ever, in judgment. So how's your day going? Who's the judge? This judge who offers life? tells each one of us that we'll simply believe Him that judgment is done. That's a good day. The Pharisees come judging. Jesus says, you think you're going to judge me? I'm the judge. And what I can do for you is I can make it so that right here and right now you'll never stand in judgment. You won't need to judge anyone and you won't stand in judgment by anyone because I will have given you, I will have imparted to you real, enduring life. This is a guarantee. It's a guarantee for all who hear and believe Jesus' Word. Paul proclaims a similar message. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How much condemnation? None. For whom? Those who are in Christ Jesus. we are in Christ by believing Him. F.F. Bruce made this statement. The believer does not need to wait for the last day to hear the judge's favorable verdict. It has been pronounced already. It's been pronounced already. Look at verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. You know, we could read verse 25 in a physical way, referring again to Lazarus or Jairus' daughter or any of those kinds of things, or even that crazy passage in Matthew 27 where when Jesus says, it is finished and the temple veil is torn, like people start heading out of the graves into Jerusalem. Like, Dead to life. We can think about it in terms of physical life, um, but I don't think that's Jesus' point. He's already talked about physical life earlier. Now He's talking about spiritual life. He's talking about eternal life. Right here, right now, the dead... Pharisees, I'm talking to you. The dead can hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear and believe will live. Right now, you have an opportunity for life. It's true then. It's true right now. Listen to the words of Jesus. Believe Him that He comes to bear our sin. To offer us righteousness and life forever. Believe Him and have life. Those who believe will live They'll live forever with God the Father, with God the Son, and God the Spirit. And with all the believers of all the ages. Look at verse 26. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. This passage is interesting. The Father being the source. Jesus Himself is also a source. You and I are recipients of eternal life. We're not dispensers of eternal life. Jesus is the, has the source of life in Himself and He dispenses life out. Earlier in the passage, He dispenses it out to whom He will. Here, just says He gives life. He has the ability to give life. My question for you is, won't you come? Won't you come to Him to have life? Won't you listen to Him? And have life. So Jesus talks about this power to give life, but he also talks about this ultimate authority to judge. He turns the attention there again in verse 27. He has given him, so the Father has given Jesus, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Uh, the reference there to Daniel chapter 7, I have this on the screen. You can just take a look. I have the certain phrases underlined that would be pertinent. Jesus, the Son of Man, coming, Jesus being the one who has this dominion. Jesus, the One that has an everlasting dominion that will never be taken away. He's the Son of Man. He has the authority to make the final assessment, which is where He goes next in verses 28-29. and Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice. And they'll come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Look at verse 28. it will be on the screens to my left and right. How many of the dead will be raised according to this passage? There's an hour coming when when how many? All who are in the tombs will hear His voice. And they're going to do what? Come out. This is a reference to everybody here. Jesus speaks of His resurrection power. He calls the physical... Physically dead to life. How many dead people? All of them. And He's going to discern out final judgment. There are two categories. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. Those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now the context, we already read it. Verse 24, what is the result of hearing the Word and believing Him who sent? What is the result? Eternal life. And what is the second result? They will not come into judgment. They do not stand in judgment. So how do we know who it is that are the doers of good here? Who are the doers of good? What good is needed for a resurrection of life? Look at the next chapter. John 6. The Pharisees, like all of us, are like, what do I do? What do I have to do? How can I accomplish this? Like the rich young ruler, Good master, what do I do to inherit eternal life? Well, look at verse 27 of John chapter 6. Jesus says, "Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of man will, what does it say? Give to you for on him God the Father has set his seal." Then they said to him, "What must we do to be doing the works of God?" How can I have these good works that are necessary for eternal life? Verse 29, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He sent. That you believe in Him whom He has sent. There's the work. So now, without developing the doctrine of justification, Jesus essentially brings forth the doctrine of justification back in John chapter 5 and verse 29. He said, there's a resurrection day coming. He's going to call them all out. When He speaks, they come out and some will be raised to the resurrection of life. Who are they that are going to be raised to the resurrection of life? Those that do good. What is the good? It's what Christ has provided for you. It's what Jesus offers to us. His life. In exchange for our life. My life is filled with all kinds of wreckage. Your life is filled with all kinds of wreckage. Let me take that. Let me take your guilt. Let me take your condemnation. Let me take your failures. Let me take your sin. Give it to Me. I'll bear it. I'll be condemned in your place. Let me give you My life. My life with no flaws. My life with only good. No Sabbath violation. Only good. No dishonor of the Father. Only good. No dishonoring of parents. Only good. He offers an exchange. So, I guess another question that I think has to be answered if we're going to be honest with the text is, why are those who have done evil headed for a resurrection of judgment? Why are those who have done evil headed for a resurrection of judgment? That's what he says here in verse 29. There are those that, are, that, that come out and those that have done good to the resurrection of life. That's the, they've received Jesus the credit of Jesus' righteousness. And those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Why is it that they, they end that way? Take a look at chapter 5 and verse 37. It says, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me, His voice you have never heard, His form you have never seen, and you do not have His Word abiding in you, for you do not believe the One whom He has sent. You are searching the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about Me, yet you refuse to come to Me that you may have what? Life. Why are they going to be raised to the to the resurrection of judgment because they refused to come to Him and receive from Him life. I'm life for you. I'm offering you. I'll take your life with all of its wreckage and I'll give you my life with all of its good. It's an exchange. I'll take your and bear your sin. Won't you come? And they said, no. Jesus has life in Himself. His words are life. He offers life. Listen, please. Move toward Him. You'll find Him to be gentle and lowly and providing. You'll find Him to be a coverer of your sin. You'll find He offers you righteousness and eternal life. Come. Move toward Him. On the other hand, if you keep judging Him, eh, my way is better. I have my pathway. I have my plan. I'm following it. Keep refusing Him. If you keep looking for life from somewhere else, you will see that He has the authority to execute judgment. He offers to take condemnation for you. But if you do not hear His Word and believe His willingness to impart life, you will experience eternal death. Separation from Him. You'll be consigned to your own pathway forever. You know, you can taste that daily. You can taste that death that arises from within you daily in your anxieties and fears and anger and bitterness, your resentment, your jealousy, your gluttony, you name it. You feel those pangs of death within you every day. Jesus offers to take those pangs of death away and offer you satisfaction in Him. Those pangs of our death, our foretastes of an an internal and eternal misery that's associated with the resurrection of judgment. And that's just the internal. Then there's the external that's compounding matters with the external misery of separation from God in hell. So you can see, you know, we're not talking about small claims court or running a red light in downtown Providence. We're talking about the most significant judge. Dealing with the most significant case. You know what's so incredible about the Gospel? The one who is assigned to be our judge is the one who came to be our Savior. You don't need to come into judgment. Jesus as life-giver and judge stands ready to impart to you life and to keep you from coming into that judgment. Jesus offered these critical, hateful, religious leaders the opportunity to receive life and rescue, and it's the same offer he makes to us today. He holds it out to you this morning. Hear my word. Believe the one who sent me. Receive eternal life no judgment. Let's pray together. Father, You know what each one needs. You know where everyone stands. You know the condition of each one's soul. Father, for those of us that have embraced this glorious Gospel, Your Son and our Savior, we we rejoice in the rescue that we've received in the life we have already had foretastes of, through your Spirit's working and helping us to feel your joy and your peace and your love and your patience. You've given us foretastes of glory. Thank you. Father, there are others among us, whether listening, sitting here, watching, you know. We pray, Father, that as as they've sat here and as you've done your work we pray that you would continue to work in in their lives to see who jesus is what jesus offers and help them to come that they might have life and have it abundantly we pray in jesus name amen